Hello and welcome to episode number five of the Night Lamp podcast. You are with uh, me, Stefan Friedrich, and, and my... And me, Adela Holmes. And my co-host. I, am I your co-host or are you my co-host? I think co-host? we're mutual co-hosts. Okay. Um, maybe we can buy to for the promotion of being the host and then the other one is to be the co-host. No, um... I don't. I, I don't think I'd be happy with that. I think we're co-hosts. <laughs> oh, we're going to have our first fight. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adela, uh, today we're going to do. Well, we've been very much focused in the last couple of podcasts on the out-of-home care sector, mm. and we've had lots of questions coming to us from people who are parents, just mm. about everyday parenting decisions. So, um, as our listeners know, uh, at Nightlamp, we specialise in the use of trauma-informed theories and trauma-informed frameworks. So, um, we thought we'd um, really have a chat in this podcast about how um, developmental trauma theory uh, can inform us about everyday parenting decisions. That's right. And also it's important to say as a bit of a disclaimer, mm-hmm. we are not by doing this suggesting that some of the ordinary everyday dis- parenting decisions that people make necessarily cause trauma. Mm-hmm. But more we're suggesting that understanding trauma theory and what happens to children through things occurring that often people don't see as being potentially traumatic can have an impact on children. So these are the things that are unintended and that do not constitute abuse. And I'm using my two fingers mm-hmm. to make quotation marks. Yeah, I can attest uh, to the fact that she just used the two fingers. Two fingers to make quotation marks. Um This is really more around the good use of the understandings that have emerged from the field of developmental trauma. And um, what we, I mean, when we say trauma, people generally turn to really extreme cases of abuse Mm. and neglect. Um, And I guess what you're saying is that we're using the knowledge that we now have that's that's come from that. Yeah. Uh, we have some relatively new or integrated knowledge about how we develop in our, in early infancy, mm. which might also be able to inform us on things that have previously run as debates that have been based in ideology. You know, they've been yes. ideological debates. Yes. Uh, is it right to smack or not to yeah. smack? And is control crying okay? What kind of consequences and punishments do I give my child? Yes. And what's validation? Can yeah. you spoil children? Uh, what of mm. old proverbs like, mm. you know, spoil... Spare the rod, spare the rod and spoil the child. That's it. Spare the rod, spoil the child. I'm not sure if that's one one that is out of Victorian England. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Although I think that might be one of is that one of Solomon's ones or is not that old? No, I don't think so. I mean, being Jewish, I think I would be familiar with well, that. Well, I won't go there then. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I think that spare the rod and spoil the child is fairly and squarely out of Victorian England, which was a very harsh parenting mm-hmm. regime. Mm. And 
if you think of the, you know, generationally, the impact of those things uh, and those ways of parenting, it was a pretty buttoned up uh, and troubled generation that was reared in that way. Mm-hmm. So spare the rod and spoil the child is not a way I'd be recommending. <laughs> no, no. And we perhaps could talk about what the effects of that are because mm. in recent times, I mean, I am, and perhaps because we work in this field every day, mm. but I am always really surprised when I'm watching one of those uh, crappy morning TV shows or, you know, um, reading some newspaper and there's it always comes up, uh, uh, you know, things about corporal punishment and oh. smacking mm. and, you know, should we do smacking and people get into this big debate and I just can't believe that it's a debate. I can't believe that it happens. And the last debate I saw was a piece of news where I think someone, not the parent, smacked the child. And so it was very clear. Everyone was very indignant about it and it's like you should never touch another child. Somebody else's child, yeah. So smack, you know, I guess I'm opening a can of worms because Mm. smacking then goes into the realm of what are the rights of the child? Um, and what is the ownership of a parent? In mm. other words, what what is the right of the parent to yes. castigate the child yeah. in that way? But in a way also there's two sides to thinking about that because the side you're talking about is the, pol- the small p political mm-hmm. issues yeah. around smacking of children, their rights, who owns them, do they belong to parents, uh, do they belong to the world, you know, those sorts of issues. But then the other side of the coin is to think about what does the child make of it? And trauma theory is very much on about what does the child make of this thing? Mm -hmm. What does the infant who lies in a cot and cries and cries and cries and cries but nobody comes make of that um, and I mean people you know if I talk about that and, and link that to controlled crying which again is a very controversial subject yes well we're here to open yeah, well, worm there's cans. another can of worms <laughs> but people will say well you know that's not what controlled crying is about it It's controlled. You don't leave them to cry and cry and cry. And I would contend you don't leave a baby to cry at all. Because my worry is, what does the baby make of that? We know what we make of that. Oh, you know, we've we've got an idea. We have an ideology. This is good for my baby. That's in the adult's mind. That means nothing to the infant who's lying there crying Mm -hmm. because they do not have a schema to make sense of it. We're forming a schema. We're forming a sense of the world. They they form a very clear sense of the world, but they don't have one formed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they can't lie there and think, I'll just cry a little bit more because this is good for me Mm -hmm. because ultimately this will help me learn how to speak how to sleep properly, 
in terms of properly, and I'm using my fingers again, yes. making those yep. quotation marks, properly meaning on my own in a cot in an ordered way between certain hours. Now, of course, we all want our children to sleep within certain hours, but there are many different cultural beliefs about whether children need to, here they go again, Mm -hmm. need to be able to sleep alone, and at what age they need to be able to sleep alone. Yeah, yeah. and this concept of when we start learning, for example, we talk about, uh, people talk about uh, a baby is learning to self-soothe. And I think we've touched on this before, Mm. that babies don't learn to self-soothe. That's not a skill you learn. It's actually something that you develop. Mm. It's a neurobiological development, your capacity to self-soothe. And you can't learn it without having had an experience of being soothed. Because you don't know what it feels like. So simply allowing a baby to cry um, and not providing the soothing when the baby is becoming aroused because it has a need a need for safety for whatever reasons feeling threatened. It could just be, uh, be cold lonely. or feeling lonely or it's been too long. And so needing that assurance um, that when that's not coming, it's going to impede their own capacity to soothe later. And that's the converse, really. Mm. So if a baby is actually provided with an experience of soothing when they need it, they are, in fact, later more likely to be able to self-soothe rather than less. There's this old Mm. myth, which probably comes from much earlier times, the the first half of the the 20th century, was this... um, very firmly held belief that you spoil a baby if you give them too much attention. Yes, yes. So, somehow they'll be they'll be spoiled, and I don't know what will happen to them. Well, but... spoil. I don't. You know. I mean, I don't it, really. I mean, what does spoilt mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, demanding of attention, not willing to be alone. I I don't really know but actually, what spoilt means. <laughs> what's interesting is that we now that that was all based on ideology and mm. cultural beliefs and mm. what's handed down to us mm. from our parents, mm. but. Now we've got the science, mm. and we can revert to science, mm. and we can say, well, sometimes the mm. science is actually co- going to contradict the way we were parented, and mm. we've got to be prepared for that. It's actually mm. quite confronting. It is confronting. But someone recently, um, there was a woman who was expecting a child. I think she was probably you know seven or eight months pregnant. Who was speaking to me recently after a workshop. And she asked me about this, that a lot of people were putting pressure on her. Some were saying, you should always go to the baby. And someone, else, you know, other people were saying, you know, make sure you follow this strict regime and you create a pattern for the baby when the baby's crying and being seen and all of that. And she asked me about it. We didn't have much time. But what came to mind at the time was I said, well, with everything that I've learnt so far, for me, it all boils down to when you've got a baby and you've got a little infant, it all boils down to the more attention you give the baby, the less attention you will need to give that baby as a teenager. 
The less attention you give the, the baby... Less troublesome attention. Well, yes. Yeah. The less, in other words, the less attention you give that baby, the less you, the less you respond, the more likely you are to have your attention preoccupied with your adolescent In not later a good on. way. Not in a good way. No. And I think... I mean, I think this goes back to the point that I was making earlier about what a baby makes of certain things. How does it understand? How does it process? Internalise. How does it how does it make sense of mm. what's happening to it? And what is the impact of how that gets made sense of? And it is less about the politics, I think, of what we do and more, although the politics plays a role too, but more about how the the dissonance between how we think about how what the baby might make of it and what they actually make mm-hmm. of it mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of projection that goes on in there, and that projection comes out of our ideological beliefs yes, we think that the baby's going to think how what we think, we think. Yeah. it's the same I mean my earlier example later you know is it okay mm. to smack at at a child um or is it not okay well we have to think how does a little child internalize being smacked what does it mean because what people generally say is and you know fair enough they say well that they learn that for every action there's a reaction so when this baby does this thing or this this child does this thing that's the wrong thing to do the child gets a smack, therefore doing that thing is wrong. Right? Yeah. But is that really how it's internalised? Well, good question. And and what uh, I think the easiest way of helping people to understand that is, how would you feel mm-hmm. if you put your hand out to touch something and someone smacked you mm-hmm. and spoke to you very harshly? Mm. I think most of us would feel quite shamed. Yeah. It would be an unpleasant experience. And then, of course, you have the fact that some, that, some, that somebody who did that is actually someone who tells you they love you. Now it gets confusing. Now it gets confusing. Mm. So, okay, you can hit people that you love. So then, you know, down the track, the child gets cross with mummy and smacks mummy. And mummy smacks the child back and says, no, Mm -hmm. you mustn't smack mummy. Mm -hmm. Oh, so it only works for the grown-ups. Very confusing. I can't smack mummy, but I love mummy, but I can't smack her, but she can smack me and she loves me. You know, that's a gross oversimplification, Mm -hmm. but it, it, it speaks to some of the complexity and some of the confusion. Then, then that gets covered over and covered over and confounded and confounded through experience. And then you have children who are quite confused and quite angry later on. And I, I guess we're talking about a scale of severity. Of course. If you're getting hit pretty hard every day by someone who mm. says they love you, mm. then your whole internal working model is built on that. Yeah. Your internal working model is, well, I get hit, 
I'm punishable mm. uh, by this person who's good and who loves me. Mm. So therefore, this is the right thing to do. I don't deserve good things. I deserve punishment. I deserve bad things. Right. And even if it's not at that pitch, right? Even if it's at a much milder pitch, it's still confusing. And what I often see is you know, people who have probably done things unthinkingly, well-intentioned, loving their children because they believe that's the way that you parent children, who later have quite some difficulties when adolescence arrives and children start to assert themselves. Mm-hmm. And they, they say, you know, I've had lots of conversations where people say, I didn't do anything wrong. We've had a happy home. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why this is now a problem. Mm-hmm. But I'm always of the view that taking aside a small amount for nature, because, you know, there is the nature-nurture controversy. There are genetic predispositions. There, there are, but they will either become magnified or minimised mm-hmm. in accordance with the child's mm-hmm. experience. And another... I think a good example is how often parents are not able to be patient to wait for a child to make their mind up about doing something. So a child might be wanting to do something, you don't want them to do it. Now what's the quickest and easiest way of stopping them doing it? You physically remove them. Mm -hmm. But you can only do that while you can still pick them up. Yeah. So... And by the way, it's the same with smacking. It's exactly the same with smacking. You can only do some of these things while you can still pick them up and while they are physically able to be moved. What I prefer is to say to the child, mummy doesn't want you to do that or whoever the person is, don't want you to do that and explain to the child why. Now, that might not stop the child. And then you say, what did I say? And you give them the time and the space to think about it. Mm. You might have to do that six times before they don't do it. But you have got a better foundation for later life than relying on picking them up and removing them and then having nothing to actually go to when you can't do that anymore. But what strikes me also is what you're talking about requires you to be, as a parent, in charge of your own emotional state. Yeah. because regulated. Yeah, well regulated and, and benign mm. and level. Because if you... Um, you know, a, a lot of people who talk about smoking, they say, well, I, I, got, I got really pissed off. Mm. You know, I was really annoyed. I got really angry. And so then we have to question, well, in that case, did you really do it to create long-term change, mm. behaviour change, or was it, um, was it a result of your own emotional state? Mm. And sometimes it's not even either... Of those, it's something around feeling shame as a parent that you Mm. can't stop a child doing a certain thing, or you're out in a social situation and you want to be seen to be a good Mm -hmm. parent. Mm -hmm. There are a range of reasons why people might resort to something rapid Mm -hmm. rather than take the longer, slower way. 
it's also about being seen to do something. Yeah, yeah. People see that you're being a responsible parent, yeah. and and in some ways it's fair enough. Well, they say, I am um, teaching my child consequences, but actually, as parents, and you know, I'm a parent too. Mm. As parents, we have to find a way to be kind of reflective in our mm. in our parenting, and to think, well, if we're going to talk about consequences, it it's harder but more useful mm. to be reflective and to say, what are the consequences of what I'm doing mm. and what I'm saying? Uh, and I think that I would, I mean, I'm pulling this figure out of the air, but I won't do my finger quotes. Uh-huh. Are you about to make up a fact on I'm, our podcast? I'm, I'm about to make <laughs> up a fact. Um, I'm thinking that probably 90% of parents out there... 91 91, yeah. maybe even 92% of parents, if they really knew what the later consequences of certain actions were with infants and toddlers, mm-hmm. would not do them. Yeah, that's right. And we don't know them because mm. when you become a parent, I mean, mm. I remember when, when I became a parent, no one said, well, here's an instruction manual and here's mm. a little course for you and you're going to learn all about child development. Mm. It isn't any of that. People, in in general, people's advice was, ha-ha, you're not going to sleep for five years. <laughs> <laughs> that was the extent of the advice I got. And how true that is. How true that is. Yeah, that's right. And you can't do anything with that. So, I mean, I, I hope that um, th- there is more and more and more information that's available to new parents um, that can assist them to make just day-to-day decisions, things that I always struggled with as a parent of little children um, when I, I didn't know. And, and also, I think one of the great sadnesses of the way that monies are apportioned mm-hmm. to people mm. is that problems seem to have to get worse before people can have affordable solutions. That's right. And you have to wait till it's there. Yeah. So um, people might, in an ideal world, be able to get intervention at a much earlier stage to help them with what seems to be an emerging problem mm-hmm. But in order to do the way things are structured now, in order to do that, you actually have to pay for your, for that yourself, and many people are not in a position to pay that. No, and can you imagine privately? Imagine if just a quarter of the money that goes into uh, later mm. tertiary systems, mm. prisons, mm. and mental health, um, and all sorts of things. And imagine if just a quarter of that money went into supporting parents at the very early stages. Just all parents and the amount of support that we could provide then, how it would translate into the social economy would be amazing. As as a universal service, Mm. not not a service for someone who's got a problem. No. no. Without a problem. No, just people who just require support and knowledge. And I can remember way back in the dim, dark ages when I first had my daughter. That was 1978. Wow. There was actually a very well-resourced infant welfare centre that all the new mothers around my area went to regularly, once a week. And 
There was a little play group there. It was facilitated by a lovely, beautiful nurse, Sister Dean, her name was. Sister Dean. Um, and I sadly think she's probably long gone by now. I hope not. It would be nice to, to know that she wasn't, but I think she probably is. Um, but the resources were there, and you knew that person, and you went, you know, I think I, I, think I went until my daughter was almost two. And so because of that, there was support and there were people that you can talk to. What I believe happens now is that you might go once or twice when an infant's born and then you're kind of set up with a group of other mothers for a mother's group, which is good and it's lovely and it it creates a, a commonality of interest, but there isn't the professional there to provide the input necessarily. Mm-hmm. And it relies on the motivation and the impetus of the mothers to keep it going. Uh, when I think of all the information I could have done with, if I'd known where mm. to find it, um, mm. not only for mothers but also for fathers, you know, mm. fathers need to know, mm. you know, how, Absolutely. as a father, how do I support... Um, you know, if, if you know, I'm talking about mm. traditional partnership... Sure. Um, with a mother, it's like, what What do I do? Um, and also different cultures. And, you know, I really feel um, we're a great big melting pot of cultures who've come in from overseas. And we're also uh, a culture where we have First Nations people in this country who don't actually get their ways of doing things acknowledged at all. You know, our predominant way of child-rearing is a white Anglo-Saxon model of child-rearing. Don't get me started on that one. There could be all sorts of questions about whether that's the best way. But as you say, we're still in the kind of aftermath of the Victorian period. (laughs) And it's the predominant approach and, you know, those uh, white understandings Mm -hmm. of how attachment occurs and... Is it a good idea to co-sleep with your baby? And, you know, all of those things are culturally determined. Mm. Mm. Different cultures do it different ways. So if that's the predominant way, who helps people from different cultures? Who helps our First Nations people say, okay, well, we do it this way? Do they get made to feel that what they do is wrong? Mm -hmm. Yes, (laughs) I think. But there are many different ways of parenting well. Um, But I think going back to your original point, Stefan, about knowing what the theory and the knowledge about um, child development and the impact of how how children's environment impacts on their brains and the development of their brains introduces another element to how people parent because, again... You were talking earlier about the difference between ideology and science. That's right, yeah. So what we were brought up with for years and years and years was basically an ideology of parenting. In that ideology of parenting, there wasn't really an understanding of the fact that your actual neurobiology is determined by your experience. And that those experiences are primarily relational. And your early, early experiences determines your neurobiology. Exactly. For life. 
Yes. Well, not for well, life, because the brain is plastic and can change. It is. It can. I'm not saying it can't yeah. change, but, yeah. it, you know, in a large part, it's going to establish a template. Yeah, there. exactly. And then that's when things have to become harder to change once established. Um, so we need to actually address ourselves as a society to helping new parents, yep. young parents, universally understand how to, how to parent and how to maximise opportunities for their children's healthy development in light of the new awareness, the theory that we are now Exactly, aware. because there's all sorts of, I think, judgments made on, mm. say, people from low socioeconomic backgrounds mm. um, that there's going to be neglect there. And actually, there are judgments made on people from upper socioeconomic backgrounds because they say things like, oh, well, they, they'll spoil the the child with all these things because they're wealthy and, you know, the child will get spoiled. Now, my my opinion on that, looking at all the knowledge out there that I've seen so far, my opinion on that is that, you know, spoiling is a little bit of a myth and I think that we're, that there are children born into very wealthy situations that then grow up and appear, they act like spoiled children and they say, oh, it's because they got everything they wanted. But actually, do you know what I think? They probably didn't get everything they needed. Well, exactly. So it's they, a kind of yeah. inadvertent yes. emotional neglect um, yes. through no yes. fault of necessarily no, of anyone's no. intent. No. But, you know, you, you get showered with toys and everything else. That's not going to hurt you. But what will hurt you is if you mm. miss out on emotional nurture when you need it. Indeed. One of the things, though, that I think is important to say is that children can develop an overgrown sense of entitlement mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if things are given in a way that doesn't actually allow them to value them. Well, I would still argue, I would still argue the same point because how do you not value things properly is when you don't have an existing value system born out of that initial relationship and attachment. uh, Look, I I have to agree with you. Yeah, because the value value of things Mm. is attributed to the relationships that they're connected to. Exactly. So it's the impoverished nature Mm. of the relationship Mm. within which it was given. Yeah. Yes, that's right. That creates the problem. That's exactly right. But it looks like, from the outside, it might look to the observer, the casual observer, as if the child was spoiled. Here's my fingers going That's right, I see them. I see them. Hopefully, uh, listeners, I hope you can see them too. Uh, These are the myths that abound. Mm -hmm. Uh, But children can become... You know, you you hear uh, stories. I certainly socially hear stories of this person and that person. Child's become very problematic. Lovely family. Yes. Don't. It must be the child. Yes. Well, you know, I don't think that children develop in a vacuum. No, no. And what we we're, <laughs> we're not saying this is a parent blaming theory no. because it's not. But there is a deficit of knowledge mm. going to the people who need it, 
who who are the parents. But, Mm. you know, there's a few basic things. Going back to our initial topic before Mm. we wrap, is what does developmental trauma, the advent of these theories, tell us about everyday parenting? Well, for me, it tells me, firstly, that the... The cortex develops, in other words, intelligence develops after the brainstem is well regulated and the limbic system is well developed and organised. Which, well, what, is it, what does that mean for, for a parent? It means um, that we maintain a low arousal environment. So we try and, as much as we can, talk to children with a level safe tone. So we try and avoid yelling children. We try and avoid inflicting pain. We, um, Which means we don't chase them around the house with a wooden spoon. Preferably Even not. if we don't hit them with it. Preferably not. It's about <laughs> lowering that sense of threat and heightening a sense of safety, which then means they can develop a, a, a good relational capacity and ability to soothe themselves. So that means that we need to respond to children when they need it. Mm. Uh, when they cry, we need to respond to them. Mm. So that's the, the other clue. Mm. And then what we'll see is that because they've got all of that well mm. organised, they'll be able mm. to think and mm. learn. And they will then, when they move on to the next stage, be better able to control their impulses. So when we talk about a two-year-old, if they have a well-regulated brainstem, as they move into the realm of becoming socialised and learning what relational interaction means, they will be better able to regulate themselves and control their impulses for a purpose. So a two-year-old wants something, they throw a tantrum. They'll kick, they'll spit, they'll do whatever it takes to get whatever it is they want. And in a healthy situation they will be able, with help, to regulate that because they will want... Well, for two reasons. Either they will learn through their loving relational experience that they're more likely to get what they want if they don't do that than if Mm -hmm. they do do that. And they will also want to please. They're socialised to the person who is helping them to calm. And also I'll add that that person is validating yes. the child because yeah. in a lot of the work that you and I do, mm. we try and re-establish a yeah. validating environment for, yeah. for kids who haven't yeah. had any validation yeah, earlier right. on. Yeah. And so I would say that the other clue, therefore, us as parents of little children, is that they require validation. Now, I think this is a mistaken term sometimes mm. because people think that validation means just giving uh, constant praise yeah. for whatever. Yeah. Now, validation needs to be genuine and there's different ways of validating a child than just giving praise. Mm. Um, they may not need praise at all, but in fact, just saying good morning, yeah. uh, asking an opinion about something, yeah. saying something looks nice. Yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'm going to get in here on one of my hobby horses. When little children, even two-year-old children want to help you with something, you should always let them help you. Even though it takes a bit more patience. Even though it takes longer Mm. and even though it will be harder. And, of course, they won't necessarily be able to do it that well. 
but they develop a sense of validation and efficacy. So the child who becomes discouraged is the child who later on you will ask to do something mm -hmm. and who will become deaf to your requests. Yeah, yeah. The child who is encouraged to help will keep helping. So it's validating just to say mm. you don't have to praise them for the awful painting no, job they've done. you say thank you for helping but me. You can, or you yeah. can say yes, I would love you yeah. to help. Thank you very much for helping me, even if they haven't done that wonderful a job. <laughs> because you're not actually talking about the effect, no, no. you're talking about the effort. Exactly. And, and children who have been encouraged to assist in that way will always continue to help because they feel like part of the deal. I, I must say one of my other hobby horses is paying children to do tasks around the house. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with that. I don't, I don't remember ever getting paid as a child, but I don't want to revert back, oh, well, I didn't get it. No, so when our show, I, but, I have but heard actually, that done. But children will always respond mm. to validation, mm. to being appreciated. Mm. And that's actually what they need. Mm. Well, that's the most important thing for them. I think we should go back onto this topic another time because it strikes me as we come to the end of the time that there's a whole range of other parts to what we've talked about. Well, we've left we about six or seven cans of worms open. Open and wriggling. That's open right. and wriggling. We've been a bit controversial. But we will have to return back to these. We will. We will. <laughs> and, and we encourage people to uh, let us know, to write on Facebook, make comments, um, join in the debate. Indeed, indeed. Thank you so much, listeners. And by the way, we've really appreciated all the support we've had. Uh, feel free to visit our site, nightlamp.org. Uh, we work in the out-of-home care sector and in parenting. Uh, we work with schools, uh, all sorts of things. Also visit our Facebook page. Um, look up Nightlamp on Facebook. I don't even know what the address is. Um, and... We will um, be having another chat shortly. Yes. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you, Adela. <laughs>